But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. Um, as a lot of you guys know, I've been on vacation the last several weeks, and uh, I know some of you have been praying for me while I was on that vacation. I want to thank you for that. It was a great time unplugging, um, spending some time with my family, and a um, little staycation interrupted by a couple trips, and uh, it was good. So um, I am glad to be back. I will let you know that um, one of the things I've learned in this, uh, this pastor gig um, <laughs> is that when I'm getting ready to teach something, a lot of times um, I have to go through the lab before I can give the lesson. Um, like, like the Lord like, kind of hammers me with the stuff before I get to teach it. And um, that's actually, it's, it's heavy, um, but it's also a, a huge blessing. I wouldn't honestly probably have it any other way, but I would just kind of give you a glimpse of where we're going and, and some of the things that I'm really excited about. Um, the last six months have been pretty overwhelming, um, and w- when I got to the end of the summer, I was pretty burnt um, and fried. I mean, I was just, my system was fried. I was, I was in pretty bad shape, and the last three weeks have been really very good for me to reconnect with the Lord, to um, repent where I need to repent and just start worshiping and praising God where I need to worship and praise God, and, and I, honestly, to take a look at my schedule, to look at my, um, how I run things. Um, after 17 years in education, where everything works on a school year, um, I think I developed some unha- unhealthy work habits. You know, you just kind of run, 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 run until you hit the vacation and you absolutely crash. And uh, in ministry, you run, run, run. And, and by the time you're ending one thing, you're starting two new things. And um, there's never a break. Um, and, and so there were some things that God uncovered, honestly, in the way I was scheduling and honestly, in the way I was managing my heart, the way I was dealing with issues that biblically we call Sabbath, how we rest in God. And um, it was good. It was hard. <laughs> it was hard, but it was good. And, and the reason I'm telling you all this is I'm letting you know that in three weeks, we're actually doing a sermon series. I've been planning this for the last eight months. Um, and the sermon series is called Deep Rest. And um, we're going to spend seven weeks taking a look at how God wired us for rest. And honestly, how when we honor the way we're wired, we have more energy, more joy, more strength, um, and we're just ready to, to uh, engage life more fully. Um, so anyway, all that to say that I'm very thankful for your prayers over the last couple of weeks. God's been doing some very good things in my heart, and uh, I'm really looking forward to unpacking some of this stuff with you guys. Um, starting this morning, we're starting a three-week series looking at the mission of our church. Um, we do this each um, fall, we kind of take a look at our mission statement, walking in Christ as a community on mission, and we unpack it because that, that, that's more than just a phrase. That really is a statement of, of what we believe God has called us, it, it, both of our purpose and our mission, why we're here and where we're trying to go. And we're going to unpack that by taking a look at this passage in Matthew um, 22. We're actually going to kind of use this as a launching point over the next three weeks to look at, at this mission statement, walking in Christ as a community on mission. 
there are three parts to that statement, and each part is, is loaded. Um, walking in Christ, as a community, on mission. And, and this morning, we're going to be looking at the first part of that, walking in Christ. What does that mean? Um, and, and, and as we unpack this, um, you know, I, I kind of have a couple hopes. I mean, one is that for our members and regular attenders, that you will um, recognize that, that this is an area in which um, there's a reason it says walking, like present tense, and I'll unpack that more. Um, we can never become satisfied. We can never become content. I mean, there's a, we, there's a contentment of the Lord, but what I'm talking about is contentment in our growth in the Lord, content in our experience of the Lord. Like, I've had enough. Like, I'm there. I've arrived. I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I want to challenge our members and regular attenders. There's more, a lot more, and we need to keep pushing. For visitors, I want to give a clear vision for who we are and what we're, what we're about, um, because God may be calling you to join us as a community, um, to jump in with both feet and, and um, kind of do life with us and experience God's work with us. Maybe not. <laughs> we're going to be clear about who we are up front so that the Spirit can lead you in that. Uh, if you're an unbeliever, if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, uh, I'm glad you're here. This is a safe place for you to ask questions, to look into the community, to explore Christianity. Uh, really am glad you're here. We're enriched by your presence and, and look forward to having conversations with you. And I hope that over the course of this series, um, you're going to get a glimpse into why we do what we do, what drives us and what motivates us. And, and, and you'll come away with a little bit more understanding of um, why this stuff is important to us and, and give you a clear vision about why we, we value it so highly. All right, so we're going to be taking a look at, at Matthew 22, okay? The context here. At this point in Jesus' ministry, um, he's still incredibly popular with the crowds, with the masses. Uh, he is not popular at all with the leadership. Um, at this point in, in the game, um, he has basically undermined their authority. He has discredited their traditions. He has not played their games. They have tried to do some power plays on him publicly that backfired, didn't work well, made them look bad. And so their solution is to get rid of him, right? He's speaking with great authority, and he's working with great power. And, and at this stage in the ministry, the way they've explained that is they said he's speaking in his own authority, and he's working in the power of the evil one. They've actually, that was their, their doctrinal explanation for his ability to do miraculous things, that he was actually empowered by Satan. And so um, at this stage, in this chapter specifically, we see different groups of leaders basically trying to trap Jesus, okay? They, they don't have the guts to come and confront Him head on because He's so popular. They realize that what they need to do is divide and conquer. What they need to do is divide His following. They need to, to put a wedge in between Him and, and His popularity, and so they keep trying to ask trick questions, right? So uh, one group shows up and they're like, you know, hey, look at this coin, um, but you say we're supposed to be followers of God, and, and here we are, we're occupied by Rome and paying Rome taxes, and who should, we, who should we give our money to? Basically trying to create a political dilemma, and, and he says, you know, whose image is on the coin, and oh, it's, it's uh, Caesar's, well, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? He comes back and and, and he gives them an answer they don't expect. He doesn't play the political game. He doesn't get involved in the social combat over what he does. Is he very simply says, look, there's a, an honor to attribute to your earthly authorities. And there's an honor to attribute to God. And they're like, man, what do we do with that? Okay, we whiffed on that one. Let's try again. So then the Sadducees come up next, and they're like, 
The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, um, and they thought that the idea of an afterlife was um, foolish, and, and so they try to... Cre- you know, <laughs> I love how skeptics a lot of times will try to come up with a, a just incredi- incredibly crazy theoretical scenarios, you know, like hypotheticals, um, and then say, now solve that, right? And so that's what they do. They show up and they're like, all right, so there's this lady and she's married and her husband dies, but by Jewish law, she has to marry his brother. So she marries his brother and then he dies. And then by Jewish law, she has to marry his brother seven times, right? And then they're like, yeah. And then in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to be, right? Like, this is the big trap question, you know, like, how are you going to answer that? We came up with the perfect hypothetical question, and Jesus was like, you guys are dumb. You know, you don't study the Bible. You don't understand what you're talking about. And first he attacked their understanding that, that there is, in fact, an eternal part of the human, uh, that, that, that we don't cease to exist when we die, that, that, and, and that Scripture supports it. And then he goes on and says, look, when, we, when we're raised from the dead, we're going we're gonna to be bodily people, but our body's going to be fundamentally different. After the resurrection, things are going to operate like they do now. And you would know that if you study the scripture. And they're like, oh, wow, we never thought about that. Okay, so then they have to step away. No, no ability to divide there. Then we get to our passage. Okay, so the Pharisees came together after the Sadducees got, got trounced a little bit. Take a look at verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, I love that word. It actually means muzzled. <laughs> like, like they could not only not return with a comment, but they had no ability, like they were they were just muzzled. I mean, they were powerless. So they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Um, no lawyer jokes here, right? Um, lawyers tend to be intelligent. They tend to be careful. Uh, they tend to pay attention to details, fine details. And the lawyers in the Pharisaic movement were not the guys that would go to the Madison County Courthouse to defend, you know, so-and-so. These were people that were experts in Jewish law, and they were expert in in all the fine-tuning of the Jewish law, all the shades of meaning. They would get together and they would debate um, highly technical issues in the Jewish law. And, And so the perfect question for a lawyer to ask in this situation is a question that has no good answer. He's not asking a question to find an answer. He's asking a question to trap, and in fact, that's what our text says. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So he thought he had come up with the perfect question. Why? Why is that the perfect question? Because no matter how Jesus answered, it was going to alienate someone. Remember, his whole point here was not to get the answer, but to use the answer. And if he could get him to respond, he was probably going to side with one of the traditions, one of the leaders, one of the teachers, one of the rabbis. And when he did that, it meant that he would alienate the others. And it would give them the opportunity to play that up and start dividing his following, right? So the, the, the Jewish leadership, the, the lawyers, had huge debates on which were the most important parts of the law, the ceremonial or the moral, right? The first... Uh, um, uh, part of the Decalogue, the first part of the Ten Commandments that are all focused on God, or the second part of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that focus on man's responsibility to man. I mean, which is greater? And, 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 and what they did is they started dividing laws up into weightier and lighter. And the reason they did this was because um, all the law was authoritative, right? They didn't argue that all the law was, was from God, um, but they recognized that there were different weights to different laws, so, so the, the law that said don't murder was heavy, right? That, that's a heavy law. Um, the law that, that says, you know, don't boil a calf in her mother's milk, okay? 
actually there, a little bit lighter, right? Doesn't carry the same weight. Is, did it come from God? Yes. Is it authoritative? Yes. So they had all these laws. There were 613 of them. Well, what ended up happening is invariably it led to a debate about which one was the weightiest. Which one is the one that crowns them all, right? And so these debates, was it moral? Was it ceremonial? Was it the first one of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other God before God. Is it, what is it, right? And so his whole point in asking the question is not to get an answer, but to, to get an answer that will ultimately allow him to trap Jesus. Um, Jesus trumps him, not surprisingly. Um, Jesus trumps him. And he does it by doing uh, something that's both technical and profound. It's technical in the sense that he answers, first of all, with an answer that the lawyer didn't expect. He doesn't respond with anything from the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt have no other God, no graven images, honor your father and mother, none of those. He goes to, to Deuteronomy 6 um, and, and, and quotes what, part of their Shema, which was their daily prayer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first and great commandment. And then I love it. He breaks the rules. and He's like, but there's a second that's like it. <laughs> In other words, I'm not just going to give you one. I'm going to give you two, right? And then he goes to Leviticus uh, and quotes a verse that basically says, you will not hold a grudge um, against you know, your neighbor, your brother, but you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he weds those two together. Technically, what he's doing is going to two very different parts of the law and wedding those two together to say that they're unified. So there's no division. The lawyer doesn't have any ability to say, look, he, he sided with this rabbi or that rabbi. Um, he came technically with a, a whole new answer. But secondly, profoundly, he actually answers the lawyer's question. And there's a profound irony here. The lawyer is using truth as a manipulative tool to try to get his own ends. And Jesus, in grace, answers his question. And if the lawyer would have answered, listened, it would have changed his life. If he would have actually listened instead of simply trying to use if he would have submitted to the Word instead of trying to use the Word, it would have changed his life. Verse 40, Jesus summarizes. He says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You want to know the foundation of ethical behavior? You want to know the starting point for what it means to follow God? The starting point is right here. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the measuring rod God uses for your heart. I want you to catch that. The lawyer came to the table and basically said, I measure up because I entered the Abrahamic covenant. I was circumcised. I go to the temple. I, I pay my tithes. I, I offer my sacrifices. I do my religious duty. 
I am moral. I don't sin like the Gentiles. I do my ceremonial cleansing. I stay away from unclean things. I I do all the right things, and I avoid all the wrong things. I worship God at the temple as He appointed. And yet He couldn't be farther from the truth. He could not in that moment be further from God. Even if he were a Gentile living in sin, even if he were walking in the worst, most heinous form of rebellion, why? Because he didn't love God, he was trying to use God. He didn't love God, he loved himself. And he was using God to justify himself. And it's really easy to look at the Pharisees and, and be like, man, they were such idiots. <laughs> because they come off looking really bad a lot of times. You know what I'm saying? Like, they just come off looking foolish. Let me ask you something. How much better would we come off? If, if Jesus were to look into your heart, into my heart this morning, do I really have it that much better, than that much straighter, that much more accurate than they did? If this is the measuring rod, how do you measure up? I'm not talking about moral behavior, not talking about church attendance, not talking about tithing, not talking about achievement in school, not talking about how well people look at you or what they think of you. I'm talking about your love for God and your love for others as the only measuring rod. I know how I measure up. And it's not real flattering. It doesn't look great. I want this to be heavy, and I'm trying to make it heavy up front for this very reason. A lot of times, I think, when we come to this stuff, we read through these passages so quickly, and we just kind of breeze through them. And honestly, a lot of us are like, yeah, the law of love, man, frees me from the law of Moses. That's so great. I got one command, <laughs> right? They had 613. I got one. Love God. Love others, right? That's warm. That's fuzzy. That's so easy. Really? 613 commands would be way easier than this one. (laughs) Give me a checklist of things to do. Show me how to be self-disciplined and to achieve, and I will do it. Ask me to change my heart, and I'm powerless. But I want to show you just how heavy this is, okay? Because, first of all, it is a command. You shall love God. You ever tried to love something you don't love? How's that work for you? Easy, right? Just lay a command on you. You shall love the new Corvette. Well, that's easy for me because <laughs> I love Corvettes, right? Um, tell me to love something that I don't love, right? When I was in elementary school, I... Um, I remember very vividly sitting in the lunchroom by myself. It's the only thing I remember about this school. I don't remember the teachers or the classrooms, but I remember sitting in that lunchroom all by myself, and there was this hovering presence of this lunch lady. I don't remember what she looked like, but she was ugly, and she was like over my back, and on my plate are green beans, slimy, cold, nasty, out of a can, I'm sure, unseasoned green beans, right? Right? And she's standing there basically 
These are healthy. These are good for you. You should love them. Eat them. My heart said, no. So I cut them up into little pill-sized bites, and I swallowed them with my milk. I remember that. I hated green beans ever since, right? She told me I had to love them. Guess what my heart did? Uh Uh-uh. Hate, right? It's only been in the last year that I actually found green beans I liked. Somebody cooked them. I'm like, those are tasty. Those are nice. Um, Trying to love something, green beans, the point is this, trying to love something you don't love, it's not easy, right? We're not talking about thou shalt tolerate the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, right? Thou shalt have some affection for the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. You shall um, have kind thoughts, right? You, you will pretend to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's easy. I want you to see how radical and, in fact, how impossible this command is. You, you will love. Love God. You're like, I can love God. Really, you value God? To love something means to value it to the point of self-sacrifice, doesn't it? When you love somebody... What do you do? You lay down your life for them, right? You lay down your life for your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, your children in a way that you, you, don't love, you don't lay down your life for anybody else in the world. Why? Because there's a level of love there that leads you to lay down your life for them. Are you, you really? You love God like that? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In fact, it gets worse. It doesn't just command you. It tells you how universal the command is, right? You shall love him with all your heart your soul, and your mind. We're not just talking about having strong affection for, right? By breaking it down like this, Jesus isn't trying to, to make real distinct distinctions about the, the makeup of, of humanity. I think what he's saying is that um, you've got to love God with everything you've got. You're a multifaceted being. Every facet needs to be aligned in love for God. It's universal. Everything in you, your, your heart, your soul, your mind, all of it aligned in love for God. There's different parts of you, and what he's saying is I want all of them, all of them working together. And, and so it's universal in its scope, and it's absolute in its demand. Notice the, the little word all. I want all your heart. Not 50%, not 60%, all of it, all of it. I want all your soul. I want all your mind. I don't just want some of it, I want all of it. I want, I want all of them, and I, and, and I want them all. <laughs> it's universal in its scope, it's absolute in its demand. So are you catching how heavy this command is? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And yet, he says, this is the foundation of all the law and the prophets. In other words, everything that's built is built on this. And if you don't start here, you're not building. If you don't start here, you're not traveling.
So that means the genuine measure of spirituality has much less to do with how you dress or how you behave or what radio station you listen to or how you spend your Sunday morning. It has much more to do with the bent of your heart. I don't know about you, but 613 things at this point starting to sound a lot easier. Give me a checklist. Let me work through it. And so I think we tend to do exactly what the Pharisees did. We tend to make certain demands from God weightier and certain lighter, right? And, and we tend to do it by where our strengths are, where we naturally are inclined to go, right? Even with this commandment, love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Some of you are more inclined to, to, to gravitate toward uh, the heart. Some of you are more inclined to gravitate toward the soul. Some of you are more inclined to gravitate toward the mind. And, and pretty soon you surround yourself with other people who gravitate in the same direction. And, and, um, and like the Pharisees, we have a way of, of making ourselves feel good about how we measure up in our own esteem and, and in our group, and, and we start looking down on other people's groups. And this is the history of the church. This is the history of the church. When you look at the history of the church, we see division and division, and we see arguments and fighting, and we see, and it's because we, we tend to do this very thing. In fact, some of you are coming into trailhead with history in previous churches, and you're bringing in certain expectations from those histories, and, and I'm guaranteed you're going to be disappointed, <laughs> right? There's not a week that, well, probably a week goes by. Let me explain. Let me, let me, there are love your God with all your heart churches. That's what they emphasize. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay? These tend to be highly uh, emotional, right? Experience-driven churches. Um, They're often loud. They're expressive. They often have powerful music and and, and engaging, um, lively, funny sermons, kind of depending on the flavor, right? The idea here is that the more you feel, the more it's real. The more you feel, the more it's real. And you know you've been to a good worship service when you're leaving sweaty, <laughs> right? These, you know it's getting good, man, when you're just starting to be like the, 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 the weeds flowing in the wind, right? You're like wheat blowing in the wind, and, and things are just livening up when everybody is like just starting to, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not making fun. That's just the reality, right? This is the, there's a flavor there that, that, that some folks, man, if they're not exhausted when they leave, they didn't feel the presence of God. You know, they just love that feeling. Here's the deal. There's a lot that's right there. There's a lot that's right there. We are to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, right? Some of us are emotionally constipated. We just, we don't know how to let the joy flow. We get intimidated when people raise a hand, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh my goodness, they're charismatic, right? Some of us are like afraid of emotion. Right? We're afraid of loud things. We're afraid that we might tap our foot. You know, like it's okay to become emotionally engaged and involved, right? But there's a danger when that becomes the emphasis. There's a danger when that becomes the measuring, when that we make that the weightier part and we make the others less, right? So the strength of, of these guys, man, they're expressive, they're engaging, they're deeply moving services. But the weakness is, a lot of times in churches like this, um, they leave, sometimes they're a mile wide and an inch deep. There's not a lot of room for deep theological discussion and study a lot of times, because that's not highly emotional. 
right? That's intellectual. That is, and, and, and a lot of times that leaves people driven to go from one emotional experience to the next. And they have to continually try to compete with the previous emotional experience. They have to compete with, and, and so they're just driven to these, these, these um, cathartic kind of explosive emotional experiences that, that when they are isolated and become the emphasis, become unhealthy. They actually distract from God instead of pointing to God. And sometimes in these churches, the experiences themselves become the measure of spirituality, and you end up with a varsity and a JV inside the church where certain people who have had certain experiences and had certain um, spiritual uh, uh, events happen in their life become kind of the varsity in the church, and those who haven't don't measure up. They're kind of the JV team, and, and until you've had this cathartic, emotional, spiritual experience, well, then you just, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it, it, there's this internal legalism that, that develops, and the measuring stick is the emotional experience. That's unhealthy, Right? So, so it's good, but not when it becomes the focus. But, you know, it's not just love the Lord your God with all your heart churches. There are love your God with all your soul churches. Um, the word for soul, the Greek word for soul is psyche, um, from which we get the root psychology. So if you're a psychology major, you are a student of the human soul. Um, the human soul is where the personality resides. It is um, who you are as an individual, how you relate to other people. So, so the soul has a lot to do with personal development, personal personality, um, potential, personal potential, but also not just yours, but others. So churches that are soulish, if you want to put it that way, churches that are focusing on loving God with all their soul tend to focus on the development of... Um, potential, right? And a lot of times, these are the, the best, your best life now churches, right? These are the ones that, that um, are just about, man, how do we make you as happy as possible right now? How do we maximize your potential right now? How do we give you your best life now? How do we get you more money? How do we get you more wealth? How do we get you better relationships? How do we get you out of debt? How do we get you a better marriage? Those are not bad things. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about how we can live better lives now. And our lives can be improved by living according to God's principles. It does free us in many powerful ways. It's a good thing, right? Some of these churches don't focus on my personal development, my felt needs. They focus on the development and the felt needs of others. Sometimes we call these social justice churches, right? Where, where we exist really to just fight for the rights of people who don't have rights, to feed the hungry, to provide water to those who don't have it. Um, sex trafficking, I mean... All things we should be concerned about, all things that we, right? God tells us that, that He desires uh, uh, us to, to work for the justice of others, to speak up for the widow and the orphan, to be the voice for those who don't have a voice, right? But when that becomes the focus, it's all about our best life or their best life now. It's about meeting temporal needs. It's about focusing on temporal improvement, and pretty soon, the glory of God fades into the background, and all we see is human need. And the betterment of ourselves or the betterment of the people that we want to see improved. And so the, the strength, obviously, is, is people do have their felt needs addressed in churches like this, or they're moved out in mission to serve others whose felt needs and, and real life needs are, in fact, not being met, Right? The weakness is that a lot of times it's short-sighted, and it's about improving life now, and it's not really about 
revolving around the glory of God. And what that ends up happening is a very short-sighted improvement, um, psychologically driven as opposed to spiritually improved, right? Now, there are also love your God with all your mind churches. Um, the love your God with all your mind churches uh, really is about having the right knowledge and doing the right things. So it's no right, do right, right? That's the, the churches that, man, when you come here, the, 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 the most important thing is that you know this, whatever our pet doctrine is. It, there's no way for me to define that because each tribe defines it differently. It could be end times. It could be a specific doctrine of Scripture. It could be a, a certain thing that makes us distinct from everybody else, but it's no right. And then, and then the moralistic application of do right, right? So you got to put the right knowledge into people's heads, and then you got to tell them to mold their behavior in certain ways. And, and here's the strength of these churches. These churches tend um, to have rigorous approach to Scripture, at least the ones I've been part of. They, they push you to get into the Word of God. Right? It's not just about having your felt needs met or just having an emotional experience. In fact, maybe those things are even mistrusted and, and downplayed. They, they emphasize the Word. They emphasize digging in. They emphasize studying. And the, the weakness with these churches, though, is a lot of times you end up with bobble-headed Christians. Christians that know a lot but have no idea how to live it. There's no engagement between their head and their heart. They can give you, <laughs> they can give you the shorter catechism, but they don't know how to love their neighbor. They don't know how to love people around them. In fact, a lot of times these churches become very introverted, um, self-focused, and they become very evaluative. We have all this knowledge, and they become very judgmental of people that don't have the same knowledge, that don't think the same things, that don't measure up in, the, in these academic or intellectual ways, right? Um, here's the deal, you guys. I'm not highlighting this to say, look how great Trailhead is compared to all these other churches. That's not the point. What I'm saying is, is there's a natural inclination to make some things weighty and some things less. There is a natural inclination to go toward what feels good, makes me feel good about myself and the people around me. It makes me in some ways feel better than others out there. God is not calling us to make this weighty and lesser. He's calling us to love Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. That, that means we are to be engaged emotionally. We are to be engaged psychologically, developing of, of personal talents and skills, the, uh, the shaping of our felt needs, and we are to develop our, our minds to, to our, our abilities, our intellect, the gifts that God has given us all in response to and in worship to God as an expression of love. So how do we do this? How do we do it without minimizing it? How do we do it without... Um, becoming a caricature of what we're supposed to be, which is really the, the, you know, the challenge before us. The bottom line is this, you guys. I think that, that ultimately the only way to do that is to stay focused on the gospel. Um, God's not calling us to be an emotionally-centered church or a felt-need-centered church or a, or a, a, a knowledge-centered church, truth-centered church. I really think He's calling us to be a gospel-centered church. What do I mean by that? Well, let me unpack it, because this is the meat of it, you guys. If you've been sleeping until now, time to wake up. Um, really, for real. <laughs> this is not... Um, this is the part of the message that has been breaking my heart, and I don't know how to communicate it. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, and I'm just trusting the Spirit of God is, is going to help me communicate this. You guys... Um, 
The premise is this. The reason we are commanded to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind is because He's infinitely lovable. God is commanding us to do what we were created to do. Let's think about the gospel. How do you love anyone? How do you love anything? Our hearts are designed to be responders, right? Telling you, telling you to change your heart is like telling a stream to stop flowing in its path. A stream flows in its path because it's responding to its environment. The gospel is the ultimate initiation on the part of a loving God to provoke us to love Him in return. Our hearts are broken and bent because of sin. Our first parents rebelled against God, and in that rebellion, they said to God, you're no longer the center we are, and we no longer want you, we just want your gifts. We're going to look to the gifts instead of the giver of the gifts to meet our needs. We're going to look to the shadows instead of the reality. And in so doing, we will become our own gods. We will become like God. We will become the center of all things, determining our own path. We committed cosmic treason. In the gospel, God looked at our rebellion. And instead of separating himself from us and judging us and rejecting us, he became one of us. Not like us in our sin, but like us in our humanity. And he lived the life we should have lived. Jesus obeyed 613 commands, and Jesus obeyed the one command. He loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind. Everything in him was wired to the beauty, the glory, the joy of who God was. And he loved his neighbor like he loved himself, and he proved it by laying down his life. So he lived the life we should have lived, and then he died the death we deserved to die. He took our place in judgment. He took our rebellion on him. He didn't hold our rebellion against us. He didn't come to judge us. He came to be judged. And on the cross, he was crushed in our place for our sin. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was him crying out from the darkness of our sin. The Holy One of God, who knew no sin, became sin for us and experienced the outpouring of God's judgment, God's wrath in our place and died. And in dying, satisfied the righteous judge of the universe's demands against sin. And when he rose again, he didn't just rise for himself, he rose for us. He rose in our victory, having proven that the payment was complete. The debt of of, of sin is death. When he rose again, it showed the debt had been paid. And he did it so he could invite us back into relationship with God, so that our bent hearts could be made straight, our broken hearts could be healed. We could once again be free to come into the presence of the giver of the gifts and worship and glorify him instead of using his gifts as a a poor substitute for him, right? So the gospel frees us to come back into the presence of God, and it initiates a message of love to our hearts. 
How do you love God? You have to look and see how he loved you. Your heart is a responder, not an initiator. The only way to love God more is to fill your vision with how much more God loves you. To be undone by the fact that though you were a rebel, an enemy of God, He's invited you to be His son. He's invited you to be His daughter. He's invited you to His table to come covered with the very righteousness of Christ who took your shame so that He could give you His glory. If that doesn't stir your heart, if that does not provoke within you any love for God, you don't believe it. I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care how moral you are. The greatest commandment is not be moral and go to church. The greatest commandment is love God, and the only way we can love God is in response to His love for us. And I'm telling you, the gospel is the ultimate message of love. A God who was broken so you could be made whole. Now, the good news behind this isn't just that God loves you. It's that you can be restored to everything you've been separated from. What are you looking for in life? Pleasure? Do you realize that there is no pleasure in life that didn't come from God? There is no pleasure in life that God did not create, which means every pleasure is, in fact, simply a manifestation of His character and His goodness. Ultimate pleasure is found in God. Can we find pleasure in the gifts that God has given us? Gifts of achievement, gifts of a beautiful day, gifts of of, of a relationship, gifts of sex. Yes! But those gifts point us to the giver of the gifts, the ultimate fulfillment. The pleasures in the gifts are shadows of the reality that we find in the character and in the nature of God. What is it that you yearn for? Acceptance? Approval? Love? The relationships that you are pursuing on earth to fulfill those needs are deeply valuable and profoundly fulfilling, but they are temporal and will fail you if they are not rooted in the deeper love and acceptance and approval of that you get from God. God gave us relationships so that we can discover more of what it means to experience His love, not so that we can replace His love with someone else's. See, when you love God, when you are growing in your awareness of how much He loves you, you're not dividing up your love like a piece of pie, like my husband and my wife gets this much, my kids get this much, and God, you will love people more as you love God more. He will actually expand your capacity for love. He will give you a greater ability to both give and receive love. The acceptance that you are so craving is a sliver compared to the infinite outpouring of the acceptance you had received from God as you clothed yourself in Christ. God both meets the need and increases your ability to receive the blessing. You want achievement? You want power? You want to be respected? I'm telling you, 
Every human need and every human desire points us to an ultimate fulfillment in God. He gave us the good gifts to be enjoyed, to be explored, to be celebrated, but not as a replacement of Him, but as pointers to Him. Ways that we can come to discover more of Him. When Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, what He is saying is that God is infinitely fulfilling. And when we're talking about walking in Christ, our mission statement, walking in Christ as a community on mission, what we're talking about is moving into a deeper and deeper experienced understanding of the profound love of God. Bringing our lives into greater alignment of delight in the one who is ultimately delightful, of of experiencing joy in the one who gives ultimate joy of having our, our need for pleasure or escape or what rest met in the one who actually designed us with those needs so those needs can be met in Him. Walking in Christ is about believing the gospel so that we can be forgiven and then keeping on believing the gospel, entering into that gospel so that the love of God can transform our hearts so that we love Him more. And as we love Him more, our appetites are redirected to the very thing that feeds those appetites. And we can spend less time running after things that don't satisfy, pursuing things that ultimately leave us disappointed and empty, frustrated, pretending, and actually digging into the thing that, very, that, that meets the needs of our deepest soul. You guys, when I, th- when I think about Trailhead Church, when I think about my own heart, I know how easy it is to slip into performance and pretending mode. I know how easy it is because <laughs> I do it. There are times when my heart feels distant from God. And there are times when in that state it is easier to pretend than to push deep. And here's the danger. That's not going to happen to all of us. But here's the danger. When we get content there, the danger is soon we mistake the facade for the reality. And we think the pretending is all there is. And we stop even being frustrated with our lack of joy and lack of fulfillment and lack of transformation. And we just accept it because this is just the way life is. You realize what's going on there? We are believing the gospel less and less and less. That God came to redeem and restore, to transform, to unleash rivers of life. That's not what I want. It's not what I want for me and it's not what I want for our church. It's messy, it's hard, it is not always pretty. But God is calling us to be a people who are pursuing what is real. To be chasing it down, dogging it down, looking to ultimately have our hearts transformed by the outpouring of the love of God. And that has to happen in community and it has to happen as we love others, which we'll get into in the coming weeks. But it begins by filling our vision with the gospel the message that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and He loves us in spite of ourselves. 
You guys, I'm going to put a quote up on the, uh, the overhead, and this is where we're going to wrap up. This is a little different than normal. I'm not going to put questions up today for our response time. Um, this is Lewis. <laughs> it's not scripture, um, but it's a quote that has stirred my heart. So take a look at it. It says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We don't want to be a people that are too easily pleased. Not when God offers His very self to us.